We will start today's session with a conversation with Joshua Possamentier, co-founder and managing partner at Congruent Ventures. Welcome, Joshua, to the show. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Where are you driving from? I am in the uh, Bay Area, in the East Bay. Okay. So I'm in Menlo Park. Yeah, I'm not far at all. Let's uh, start by having you introduce um, the firm, Congruent Ventures, as well as a bit of your background. Let's get you acquainted with our audience. Great. Uh, so the firm, Congruent Ventures, uh, is a relatively new firm. We, are, we were started in 2016. We're on our second fund at this point. Um, this is a $125 million fund. We're focused on early stage companies in the sustainability and clean technology landscape. Um, this includes sectors from alternative energy to food and agriculture, uh, urban and mobility, and uh, sustainable consumption production. So pretty broad spectrum. And within those, we, we will invest in anything from you know, deep tech and hardware to software to fintech to consumer products, anything that has a sustainability aspect to it. Um, okay. Yeah. So um, just to mm -hmm. keep this contextual, um, our focus, one million by one million focus, is in IT and IT-enabled services. So if you could, you know, talk primarily about the intersection of your sustainability work and IT and IT-related uh, ventures, that would be terrific. Yeah, um, absolutely. Now, so in with that context. Uh, could you also elaborate a bit on uh, what your definition of early stage is? Um, you know, early stage has now fragmented quite a bit all the way from, you know, uh, pre-seed, seed, post-seed, pre-series A, small series A, large series A. Where in that continuum do you like to play? Uh, so we play anywhere from very first money in to sort of an early Series B in today's uh, using today's definition. So okay. uh, I think north of 80% of our deals have been first institutional checks. Um, so we tend to skew pretty early. Um, we, we're happy to lead, happy to follow. We have historically led about two thirds of the deals we've done, but uh, you know we're not. It's not part of our uh, core thesis. So we're happy to do whichever makes sense. And what um, is the check size when you operate in the, you know, first check or early check mode? What what check sizes do you write? Uh, so historically, we've written checks as small as 150k, and um, and right now we we sort of cap it out at uh, for a first check at about four million. So it's a it's a very wide range. It really just depends on the situation. And geography, do you invest all over the United States, all over the world, only in the Bay Area? What's your scope? Uh, so we have a North American focus, but not a limitation. So just given the small size of the team and our hands-on, you know, typically pretty involved approach, uh, it, it tends to be easier to, uh, to focus, you know, closer to home, i.e. In, in North America. But, uh, you know, we have, we have some, you know, we have an investment in Eastern Europe. We have... We have been actively looking elsewhere as well. So overseas is uh, within range. Okay. So um, 
Let's do a few case studies of the kinds of companies you have invested in. And in doing that, if you could um, highlight a bit, when did this company come to you? What did you see when they came to you that caught your attention and that compelled you to write checks? Um, so do maybe two or three of these use cases, and then we will, uh, we will try to understand uh, based on that, how you think of deals? Uh, sure. Um, any particular ones in the portfolio portfolio that you think would be interesting, or should I just pick some that I? Uh, you should pick. I don't know your portfolio at all, so I can't. Sure. Uh, so let's see. Uh, one that's um, uh, recently raised some money and just you know top of mind is a company in our portfolio called Amp Robotics. And despite the name, they don't actually manufacture much in the way of robotics, but they're a machine learning and uh, machine vision company that uses mm -hmm. advanced machine vision to basically control robots, you know, second, third-party robots, to sort recycling and, uh, and really extract more value from that, you know, that waste stream. So instead of people picking those you know, recycling targets right now, because it's actually a pretty hard uh, machine learning problem, um, the, the CEO worked on you know, aspects of this for his PhD thesis in machine learning and spun that into mm -hmm. a, a company. And we were, we were some of the very first investors into that as he left Caltech. And so what university they, did this research happen at? He was at Caltech, the CEO. Um, and very so we, we, we invested close to three years ago and then Sequoia just led their series A last year. So they're, they're off they're selling to businesses, they're, or they're selling to, selling to uh, machine makers, robot makers. Yeah. They're no. they're um, they're their current customer base are operators, and so they sell their software, and then and along with packaged uh, robotics as well. So they partner with big robotics companies, but they sell to the recycling facilities. I see. Okay, interesting. Got it. Okay, mm -hmm. let's do another one. Uh, let's see, another one, um, we have a company called Energetic Insurance, which interestingly is a pure play insure tech company. They make a, um, an insurance product backed by a, uh, a top five global reinsurance company to basically do credit enhancement for customers that want to get solar and other energy products, but have no credit of their own. So small businesses frequently just don't have, it's not that they have bad credit, they just don't have any credit. If you're a Fortune 500 company, you're, you have good commercial credit, you can you know, borrow money. But if you're a small business, it's a lot more difficult. You have to have a recourse loan, you have to have personal guarantees, and Energetic wraps energy product, uh, projects that make good financial sense on their own in an insurance product so that you, don't, you as a small business owner can get financing for them. And so it really opens up uh, you know, a, a trillion dollar opportunity globally for um, uh, for new energy deployments with better financial tools. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Now, um, in the two examples that you shared so far, uh, mm -hmm. talk a bit about how did these companies come to you? Why did they come to you? Or how did you find them? And what did you, what did they come with? So, Amp Robotics initially came in uh, through a friend who uh, had, current, had previously worked at um, 
at a lab in Colorado, and he'd been, he'd joined the company sort of as a business advisor, joined the company, joined the co- joined the founder as a business advisor, and I was at a uh, at a conference, uh, an NREL conference conference in Denver, and you know he just caught me uh, caught me in between events, uh, parts of the event, and uh, said you have to meet this guy. It's you know this is an amazing amazing idea, and that's. It was basically the two of them and a PowerPoint presentation. And so that was, mm. you know, that was the inception of that, that uh, new relationship. So the technology was not in place yet? That they developed the technology after you invested? So the core technology, the machine learning parts, had mostly been developed, well, at least initially developed and proof of concept, concepted at uh, Caltech. And they had not, they, I don't think they'd actually built a, uh, you know, tested this on a real world system yet. But the concept was good, and, and this is a space that we we looked in previously for many years and never really made an investment. So we were generally familiar with the problem they were trying to solve, and this seemed yeah. like a compelling you know, a compelling solution to a problem we already knew existed. That was that was pretty straightforward. Mm. And so, what was the check size? Uh, uh, the, so the the round size, which I can speak to, was initially. Uh, somewhere between three and a half and four and a half million. I, I can't remember exactly where it came in. Um, and right. so, so we, we, we certainly, uh, you know, did, did a good chunk of that. And then we raised a little more capital. And then the last, last year was, I think, uh, yeah, I don't have the top, top of my head under 20 million so, for the series A. I see. Okay. Let's switch to the other example that you mm-hmm. talked about, and, and what is the trajectory, and how did you find it? What what caught your attention? Why, and etc. Uh, so with Energetic, I surprisingly hadn't ever met either of the founders previously. They're they're both energy space veterans, uh, one from you know one from Enernoc, one from Fraunhofer Institute, and so I I should have known them, but never crossed paths. I was introduced there via one of their advisors, who I've known for years and years out of the Bay Area. The co- that company's based in Boston, um, where you know I, I go. I'm in Boston at least, well, historically at least three or four times a year. But um, so I was introduced to Energetic uh, through one of their advisors, and introduced extremely early. They both of the co-founders had just left their prior jobs, and you know had been working with this this advisor. And they said, look, we're not really ready to raise. Here's what we're doing. What do you think? And, and we'll be ready to raise you know, our first money in you know, three to six months. And let's keep in touch. And so we did exactly that, kept in touch. Um, they made some more progress. I think they reached out two or three months later to say, here's what we've done. What do you think? And then um, I think it was about six what months. What had they done? What, in two or three months, what had they done? So this one, the uh, a couple of things. So the core of that business is their underwriting engine. It's uh, it ingests a lot of software, a lot of data from the markets, and provides sort of underwriting guidance. And so what they'd done initially is they had proved that they could gather a lot of data and show at least uh, preliminarily that it was good data, that that it was it was valid and and um, it was uh, it was something you could base insurance on ultimately. So they proved that. And then the uh, the next phase, so that that was the first thing. That was the first question they, they answered. The second question they answered is, is it possible to structure a product as a startup that's poorly capitalized, you know, minimally capitalized, with an insurance partner of some sort? 
And that was the second question they, they spent probably three months sort of digging into and answering and said, look, there is actually a path towards a product here that makes sense in the insurance world. I have never, so I'd spent some of this time just coming up to speed on insurance because I've never invested in an insurance company before. And so that was, um, that was kind of what I did on the side, but they, and they were doing it in parallel, but um, proving those two things. So can they get the right kind of data and prove that it should work? And can they structure a product in the space? And they did both of those things. And then, you know, and then we led their pre-seed round to, um, mm -hmm. to ensure that, uh, to ensure that they could actually build a product of some sort. So thus far, it had all basically been paper and manual. And then that first pre-seed round enabled them to build sort of a minimum viable product packed together and develop a formal relationship with a reinsurance partner. And then, the, then we also led the series seed where they, that was contingent on them actually signing up that reinsurance partner, which they did. And so that was, I think we made, we made the first investment two and a half years ago. And then we made the, 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 the uh, led the seed last year, about a year ago. Okay. So uh, Josh, we've looked at a bit of what you've done and how you operate. Granted, it's very short and very little, but uh, at least we've got a flavor. Um, mm -hmm. I want to want you to kind of look ahead and share with us what uh, you in one of your examples you said you invested in a problem that you were already familiar with and you found a great technology out of Caltech that addresses that problem. So you were already familiar with the problem domain, um, and one could you know, positive that you were already looking for a solution to that problem, a company that addresses that problem. Are there other such problems looking ahead that you have identified that you would like to find a, an entrepreneur team uh, that solves that problem, has the expertise to solve that problem, and please pick the ones that are in the technology, IT and IT-enabled services domain? Sure. Um... <laughs> So the way we typically operate, and, and just to give some context, is um, we tend to be very, uh, we have deep theses around certain things, like the areas that we see are huge issues. Um, yeah. In reality, we have those theses, but at the same time, we are an early stage firm. And so we, we look at whatever comes in, whenever it comes in. So we're pretty opportunistic in terms of the actual transaction. Um, so some of the challenges I'd say we have that are definitely IT centric, um, not challenges, but opportunities we see. Um, there's a lot in, in supply chain efficiency. Um, we've, we've made two, two or three bets, three bets at least, in, uh, in making supply chains more efficient. One of them was a company that's basically turning paper at the edge of uh, supply chain, so bills of lading and invoices uh, from paper to digital, pretty straightforward. Another is doing um, leveraging data and Internet of Things uh, tools to ensure better uh, supply chain um, quality for food, specifically for grains and seeds. And the third one um, is doing route optimization. So driving fewer miles to hit fewer stops. So all of those hit, an, hit a topic that, um, that we've, we've looked at before. Areas I'm really interested in right now are making better use of bi uh, multimodal transportation. So US, you know, it, rail, Rail freight is underutilized dramatically. We have too many trucks on the road. So how do you how do you make these systems interoperate? I mean, it's, it's really a software problem at the end of the day. I think what Flexport's done on uh, on, on uh, transshipping for freight has been 
just amazing. Um, that's obviously too late for us, but we would have absolutely done something like that early. Multimodal transportation tools, so blending the different things we've got from scooters to ride shares to car share to public transportation, all of that, blending that all in. Um, tools around urban and infrastructure tech to enable, um, to enable uh, urban planners and, um, and public planners to make better decisions to optimize uh, what resources we have to you know, do what's needed. Those are all, those are all you know, huge opportunities. Um, and then there's better uh, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. I would say our, our uh, electric and energy utilities are you know, operating on software that was really written 30, 40 years ago. And bringing those capabilities into today's you know, software space is potentially huge. We have one company uh, working on a corner of that market called Camus. They're working on, um, on replacing some of the edge software in, in the utility space. But that core software from billing, you know, driving a billing system or a transactive energy model, all of those are just, those are, those are marketplace models. Those are, uh, those are you know, asset control models. They're, they're, they've been done elsewhere. And the utility space is a very conservative universe. And so we just haven't seen, we haven't seen that space presented really with a compelling set of solutions. And I think that's, again, a huge, huge opportunity. I mean, that's, that's a you know, tens to hundreds of billions of dollars globally opportunity. So those, those are a few of the IT-centric areas that we've really been looking for. So, you know, we keep paying attention and understanding at the end of the day what makes these successful in our minds is not only developing the right product, but understanding how to take them to market since a lot of those are yeah. very conservative yeah. markets. Um, so understanding yeah. how, how a utility buys, how you need to build a company to intercept that purchasing pattern and not overcapitalize yeah. or spend it too early. Um, yeah, so that those are, <laughs> it's a tricky space. It's much, much more different, difficult than a, uh, a simple, uh, you know, enterprise IT tool. Yeah. So um, given what's going on in the world right now, we are obviously facing an incredible lapse of sustainability on a global scale. Well, yeah. How do you process that? Are you, uh, are there problems that you see can be solved with technology and, and scalably? How are you seeing things already? Are you thinking about or you're looking for things in, in this domain? So interestingly, almost everything we look at and everything we invest in actually reduces costs at the end of the day. And so interestingly, there's no sacrifice to be made when you, when you move towards most, not all, but most sustainability-centric uh, you know, software solutions or, or companies. Um, the, the challenge and the perception that it's a more expensive thing is a little bit outdated. And so my, my, my take, especially as we're talking about, uh, um, as we're talking about sustainability you know, software globally, um, these, these, you know, if profitability is a challenge, you should look towards sustainability as, a, as an opportunity to reduce costs. They improve efficiency, improve access, grow markets, shift, you know, it, it, obviously, not everything's good for everybody. So what's good for alternative energy is probably not good for conventional energy. But if you're building a company, 
and the trend is going in that direction. And most most countries around the world, you know, our country here, accepted unfortunately, um, are you know are part of the Paris Paris um, uh, Accords, which which will reduce the uh, reduce the um, uh, carbon footprint relative to uh, you know prime numbers. That that trend and those you know implementing those changes. Is just a, is, again, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to shift value from, you know, a very old and outdated and, you know, non-sustainable ecosystem to a sustainable one. So, again, it's cost savings. At the end of the day, it makes things cheaper for consumers long term, reduces volatility. I mean, all that we're seeing in terms of volatility that's taking its toll on the uh, oil and gas industry today between uh, between Saudi Aramco and the Russians, like that's. That is not something you're going to see with alternative energy in nearly the same way. So, um, going back a bit to your um, first example of investing in this um, robotics technology, uh, one thing that I'm monitoring is that we are probably going towards an accelerated pace of adoption of robotics technologies in factories. We've just gone through a tremendous shock where, you know, factory workers can't get to work. And I think there's going to be, and that creates tremendous supply chain disruption. So those the people who own those factories are going to accelerate their move to as much automation as possible and removing that risk of people not being able to come to work uh, at a much more accelerated pace than the pace at, you know, the trajectory of that uh, industry so far. Um, coupled with that, there's going to be some, you know, supply chain uh, reorientation where countries are going to try to bring in uh, more self-sufficient supply chains within their shores so that they don't have to de depend so much on China and, and so on and so forth. So, so there's quite a bit of disruption and discontinuity happening in that space that accelerates the pace of automation. Um, now, do you consider, how do you resolve the sustainability question on this? In, in, in one sense, it becomes more sustainable as in the su supply chains are, uh, can be disrupted less readily. On the other hand, this also accelerates the employment issue, um, you know, basically automation replacing humans and humans be becoming further disenfranchised. How do you resolve this as from a sustainability point of view? So <laughs> it's a, it's a, that's a tough question. I totally agree with your analysis that there's, that this crisis among others is shifting people towards you know, desiring more, more, uh, you know, automation in general. I would say based on also, you know, parallel experiences. So in addition to Amp Robotics, we have another company called Fox Robotics, which does, uh, which makes autonomous forklifts. And mm -hmm. in much the same way, you know, they've both experienced dramatic labor challenges. Um, you know, it's, it's a terrible, like picking recycling off of a conveyor belt, uh, you know, eight hours a day is just a, it's an awful, awful job. I mean, granted, some people have to do it, but they have huge issues staffing those roles. People won't stay in them. They're not doing them very well, and so you, you, you know, it ruins the output quality. So you have to ask yourself, well, what's really the point of having a person do those jobs? If, if they're turning over that quickly because they're awful, awful jobs, maybe there are some things that, that uh, 
that robotics and automation are better for. And, on, and, and you know, nobody's going at these applications with an eye towards specifically removing, you know, people from the equation. They're going after them because they can't find the people. Um, this is happening in agriculture as well. I mean, crops are being left in the field because at this point in the U.S. and, and, uh, and the EU as well, there aren't enough people to pick those crops always. I mean, right now we have a whole different situation, but previously um, there's, there's just been a massive labor shortage on some of the, in some of these sectors. But on, with Fox Robotics, you know, automating forklifts is actually, you could argue that's actually much more of a safety feature, right? There's not numerically that many forklift drivers in the world, but it's one of the most dangerous things you can do between, you know, human-operated forklifts accidentally injuring and killing people and then the, the drivers themselves being injured. It's one of the, the highest, you know, highest injury uh, jobs in a, in a distribution center or warehouse. And so by automating that, you make it a lot safer. I mean, it's sort of the same thing ultimately for, you know, auto, auto, uh, you know automotive autonomy. If you think about it as a, as a safety feature, in the U.S., something like 40,000 people a year are killed in traffic accidents. If you could reduce that by half, you know, kill 20,000 fewer people, what's that worth to society? Um, so, you know, can we slow the, um, the shift to automation for manufacturing and, uh, you know, any, and logistics and supply chain? I don't think so. I mean, we've been on this, this uh, automation march for at least the last 50 years. And what it is is productivity improvement, and it drops, ultimately, it drops the cost of manufacturing. So that, that trend is happening whether we, whether we participate in it or not. We'd rather, you know, see it happen in the most sustainable way possible and hopefully not erode jobs but in, improve existing worker productivity. So to the extent that we can, we can leverage existing workforces to have higher output, so the same factory with the same staff, perhaps instead of driving forklifts, they're overseeing the forklifts and some other automated equipment. It's safer, probably pays better, and you know, it, it, it's more sustainable long-term from a workforce perspective. But so from an entrepreneurship and venture capital point of view, I think uh, manufacturing and uh, supply chain and industrial automation is one of the greatest money-making opportunities for the next you know, certainly for the next decade. So um, I don't think entrepreneurs or investors are going to hesitate on that one, and they should not hesitate on that one. The, the bigger philosophical question is, is much more complex. If you're interested in that topic, audience, uh, you can read my Man and Superman series on the One Million by One Million blog. Um, I have dealt with this at a, at a much bigger scale um, from a philosophical point of view and, you know, futuristic point of view, what is likely to happen. All right. Well, that was a very 